0: Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Matthew writes, now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Jesus, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, are you the coming one? Or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. In the last several chapters, Jesus has demonstrated his amazing power. Power over disease in chapter 8 verses 1 through 7. Power over nature in chapter 8 verses 18 through 27. Power over Satan in chapter 8 verse 28 through 34. Power over sin in chapter 9 verses 1 through 17. Power over death in chapter 9 verses 18 through 26. Power over darkness chapter 9 verse 27 through 31. Power over demons 9 32 through Jesus, in chapter 10, imparts that power as they begin a short-term outreach and campaign and evangelism throughout the region. And even though Jesus has dealt with disease and nature and Satan and sin and death and darkness and demons, there's still another dragon to slay. And you might think in light of all of those other things, it seems to be a very small dragon indeed, but you would be incorrect. Because many people deal with doubt. That unspoken lack of confidence. We know that the religious leaders have their doubts about Jesus. But now the doubt comes from an unexpected source, John the Baptist. And that might surprise you at first, particularly again, since you know that clearly John is called by God with a message from God that John the Baptist has in fact, remember, been there from the very beginning. He was there at Jesus' baptism. He saw the clouds part. He heard the voice from heaven. He saw the Spirit of God come upon Jesus. But that should provide at least some small measure of comfort to some of you. Particularly if you're struggling with doubt or you have a, a child either grown or not grown. A grandchild grown or not grown. Who you've raised them, you've ministered to them, you've prayed with them, you shared the Bible with them. And you're wondering how they could possibly have to deal with this. And is there a bright side of doubt? I'm going to suggest that there is. Francis Bacon wrote, and I quote, If a man begins with certainties, he shall end in doubts. But if he begins with doubts, he shall end in certainties. There is a bright side for people who question. There's a healthy skepticism and there's an unhealthy skepticism. Everyone struggles with all kinds of difficulties and doubts. The following statements are taken from official documents and newspaper magazines that were widely read in their day. Listen to what the authorities said in the past. 1840, and I quote, Anyone traveling at the speed of 30 miles per hour will surely suffocate, unquote. They were questioning whether or not it was a good idea to ride on trains. There were knowledgeable people who thought that if you went a certain speed, the air would literally be sucked out of your lungs. And they were wrong. 1878, quote, electric lights are unworthy of serious attention, unquote. Isn't that fun, especially since you just put your Christmas lights out? 1901, no possible combination can be united into a practical machine by which men shall fly. It's their way of saying, human beings will never get off the ground. 1926 from a scientist. This foolish idea of shooting at the moon is basically impossible, unquote. Another scientist in 1930. To harness the energy locked up in matter, it's impossible unquote. My favorite, of course, from Thomas Watson, who was the president of IBM in 1943, where he made the surprising statement, I think there is a world market for maybe five computers. (laughs) Everyone who has a smartphone should wave their smartphone around. They couldn't be more wrong. A lot of people have to deal with things that simply aren't true, and they'll inject doubt into the conversation. But look at what happens at the beginning of our study. In verse one, it says, Now it came to pass, and of course, this is everyone's favorite passage who struggles with kidney stones. They underline it, highlight it, and hope it'll come true in their life. But it actually doesn't have anything to do with passing stones. It has to do with a transition. And in this particular point in our passage, in the book of Matthew, it is a fulcrum. This is the hinge. In the first several chapters, we've been dealing with the revelation of Jesus. In the next several chapters, we're going to be dealing with the rejection and rebellion They will reject the revelation and rebel against Jesus. After instructing the disciples in chapter 10, that's what it says. Now, it came to pass after the instructions that were given, and we spent a great deal of time on chapter 10, as Jesus unfolds the short-term mission strategies. Jesus sent them out, and so for a short time, he ministers alone. And so when it says he finished commanding them and he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities, he's talking about the northern area of the Galilee. According to most scholars... The region of the Galilee and Judea and the immediate environment around there had a population probably of close to 12 million people. The reason why this becomes astonishing is there's about 6.5 to 7 million people today. This was a highly fertile area and it was a highly populated area. And so Jesus is preaching in the cities in the region of the Galilee. And the ministry of Jesus was to teach and to preach. The miracles of Jesus were to authenticate the message of Jesus. Remember the word preach, even though it's fallen out of favor in our culture, in our society. Preach means to proclaim. Teach means to explain. The preacher encourages and exhorts, the teacher imparts information. And by the way, that's exactly what's going to happen. And so Jesus will go to their cities, and typically that means he would go to their synagogues. The synagogue was the normal preaching venue, but it wasn't uncommon for an itinerant preacher To find a space along some well-traveled crossroad. Jesus would go to the marketplace. Jesus would go to the crossroad. Philo, the Jewish historian, indicated the synagogue was typically the place to read and explain and expound the scriptures. One Bible teacher says, quote, visiting rabbis and scholars were always welcome in the local synagogue. And Jesus availed himself of that privilege many times. Matthew chapter four, verse 23. Again in Matthew chapter nine, verse 35. Again in Matthew chapter 12. We'll see it in verse nine. Mark 6, two, Luke 6, six. The list could go on and on and on. But the focus of his teaching is going to be on the nature of God's kingdom and the spiritual nature of God's kingdom. This is going to lead to opposition and doubt. The reason why it's going to lead to opposition and doubt, it isn't just simply because people don't want to hear about the spiritual kingdom of God. These are men and women who are anxious to hear about a social political, and a cultural revolution. They want to be free from the bondage of Rome and from the yoke of slavery. They want a world in which they can practice Judaism, unhindered. Messages usually take two forms, those that are welcome and those that are unwelcome. And like I said, this is the tipping point. The revelation of Jesus has happened for the first 10 chapters. Now begins rebellion against the king. In the next three chapters, by the way, the Jews are going to rebel against every revelation that Jesus has given about himself. Jesus has announced that John is a messenger and that he's come from God. And John is allowed to be arrested in chapter 11, verses 1 through 6, which we're we're going over right now. Jesus performed many miracles... As he performs these miracles, the cities are going to see the miracles and refuse to repent. In chapter 11, verse 20 through 30, Jesus will announce his principles. The same principles that he outlined in chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. But as he announces the principles, they're going to argue with him in chapter 12, verses 1 through 21. He reveals his person. And as he reveals his person, they'll accuse him of doing the miracles by the power of Satan in chapter 12. The rebellion will lead to an open rejection. He'll be arrested. He'll be punished. Tortured is a better word. And then he'll be killed. And so in verse 2, look what it says. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ. He sent two of his disciples and said to him, are you the coming one or do we look for another? The John that is being spoken of is John the Baptist. And those of you who are familiar with the New Testament, you probably are also aware that at this point in the narrative, in chapter 11, he has been in prison for quite some time, since chapter 4, verse 12. Why is John the Baptist in prison? John the Baptist is in prison is because he's confronted Herod Antipas concerning his unlawful marriage to his brother Philip's wife Herodias. I know, this sounds like telenovela. It sounds like this could be reality TV. What, what, what is happening? Herod Antipas, who is the grandson of Herod the Great, When Herod the Great dies, he divvies up the kingdom to a few of his sons. Those sons are involved in all kinds of wickedness and intrigue. Herod Antipas is in charge of the western Galilee. And if you have a map in your mind, if you can imagine the Galilee, it's it's sort of in the shape of a harp. There's an entryway out of the lake which is the Jordan River. As the Jordan River travels south, it empties into the Dead Sea. The land on the, western side of, uh, on the western side of the Galilee belongs to Herod Antipas, but also on the eastern side of the Jordan. So if you follow the Jordan River down south to the Dead Sea, on the eastern side of the Dead Sea, there is a fortress that is built by Herod Antipas. By the way, this is the same Herod who will later entertain Jesus. But it's interesting to me that John the Baptist finds himself in prison for confronting unlawful marriage. And that's what prompts the question. And what is the question? Are you the coming one? which clearly means God's Messiah. John the Baptist described the Messiah as the one who would come and burn with chaff in an unquenchable fire in Matthew chapter three, verse 12. Remember, part of his message is, God is going to bring his Messiah. The Lord is going to judge the earth. Judgment is inevitable. God will rule. The Messiah will destroy the enemies of God. When is all this going to happen? Now, I want you to think about it. John is in prison. Jesus is in the Galilee. He is healing people. And so as he's in the Galilee healing people, John is in prison and he must be thinking, when will he march on Jerusalem? When will the army begin? When will the judgment begin? Again, remember he's there at the baptism of Jesus. He hears the voice of the father, authenticating the identity of his son. So what is this that John doubts? Clearly, clearly, he is aware of, who he is, he understands and saw the spirit of God come upon him. So what is it that he's doubting? Is he doubting the identity of Jesus or is he doubting the agenda of Jesus? Again, to his credit, Jesus sees John Not as a person who's easily swayed to the left or easily swayed to the right. As a matter of fact, in verse 7, it says, As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Does this sound like a person who's going to blow in one direction and then blow in another direction? I don't think so. So what are we to think? Is it possible that John in prison begins to look around at this prison and he begins to wonder, have I misunderstood what I saw and heard? Have I misunderstood what the Messiah's actual agenda? Have I misunderstood either the identity or the mission of Jesus? Clearly, Jesus considers John to be one of the greatest human beings who has ever lived. He'll later say of those born of women, there's none greater. Abraham, Moses, Joshua, Elijah, David. So why does he waver? Why does he doubt? By the way, let's explain our terms. The word doubt refers to a, not just simply a lack of conviction or even a reluctance to believe. It could include the inability to decide. Doubt begins when evidence seems to make some claim weaken or fall apart. Doubt, like uncertainty, can make one indecisive or suspicious or bring about some mental or emotional or relational paralysis. Os Guinness in one of his wonderful books writes, quote, Our English word doubt comes from the Latin dubitare, which is rooted in an Aryan word, which means to divide into two or two, or that which has been divided into. To believe is to be in one mind, he writes, and accepting something is true. To disbelieve is to be in one mind about rejecting it. To doubt is to waver between the two to to believe and disbelieve at once. And so the idea seems to be that at one moment you believe and that another moment you don't believe or at one moment you you affirm or at another moment you don't affirm. Let me give you an example. The Broncos are playing the Patriots tonight. Imagine a person says, "I know they're going to win." Another person says, I know they're going to lose. Another person says, I hope they win. Another person says, I hope they lose. And then someone, after watching this past several weeks, says, I doubt they'll win. What are they saying? They could be saying, I hope they win. But all reason seems to belie that. So what are we talking about? Like I said, John is arguably the greatest man of his day. But he seems to be experiencing some confusion, some perplexity. And this should automatically cause you to ask yourself this question, well, what about me? What about you? Do you ever wonder about your life? Do you ever wonder about your circumstance? Do you ever question your your marriage or your job or your ministry? Are you ever confused or perplexed? Take comfort. God knows. God may understand your doubt and your confusion. And what's interesting to me, in part, is in this passage, when Jesus will offer an explanation... He doesn't condemn John. He doesn't even condemn him in the confusion. But let me be clear about something. I'm going to suggest to you that God isn't honored or pleased by doubts about him. You see, we live in a culture and a society where we celebrate doubt. And we reward ambiguity. Doubt suggests that God will Either not make good on what he's promised or suggest that God doesn't know what he's doing. So again, I think that doubt falls into different categories. It's different to doubt God, what he has said and what he has revealed about himself versus doubting myself or doubting what other people say. I think that there's a healthy skepticism and I think that there's an unhealthy skepticism. Healthy skepticism helps you when you go to purchase a car in order to avoid purchasing a lemon. But an unhealthy skepticism would be I can't buy any car because no matter which car I buy the chances are it's going to break down and therefore rob you of reliable transportation at some time in the in the distant future at some point You have to choose between a limit and reliable transportation. And this is where investigation becomes helpful. James warns us that the one who doubts is like waves of the sea tossed to and fro on the wind in James chapter 1 verse 6. Have you ever been in jail? Have you ever been in prison? Have you ever been in jail or prison for doing what's wrong? Have you ever been in jail or prison for doing what's right? And John is in jail, not because he did something wrong, but because he did something right. Maybe you've never been in jail. Maybe your incarceration is a different kind of incarceration. Not the kind with bars and locks and guards. It's the kind of jail that keeps you in a place of uncertainty, ambivalence, or misunderstanding. You might have doubts about Jesus. You might have doubts about God. You might have doubts about the Bible and the gospel. Others of you might even have doubts about God's love or God's goodness or God's judgment or God's sovereignty. You might doubt God's will or his intentions toward you. In the sixth grade, I entered the science fair. My subject, mold. I did an investigation of mold. Doubt is like mold. It starts off small. It changes color. It spoils its host. Doubt can come from difficult circumstances, incomplete or inaccurate information, worldly influence, unfulfilled expectations. There's lots of reasons why lots of people doubt. Charles Darwin described his own descent into darkness. In his own words, he wrote, I gradually came to disbelieve in Christianity as a divine revelation. Disbelief crept over me at a very slow rate, but was at last complete. The rate was so slow that I felt no distress, unquote. Doubt does that. You wake up and you wonder, is the Bible true? Is what it says about God true? Is it what it says about Jesus true? Is what it even says about me true? People, again, suffer from all kinds of problems for all kinds of reasons. You may have thought that you served the Lord well and you still suffered and you perceive that suffering to be tragic, tragic, or unjust, you wonder, how could God allow this to happen? How could God allow something to happen in my family? How could he allow it to happen in my marriage? How could he allow it to happen in, in my life? Has something in your life caused you to doubt God's love or question his will or even distance yourself from the plan that he has for you? By the way, do you dwell on your painful circumstance or on the Lord? I think we're all vulnerable to doubt, but we're most vulnerable to doubt when we willfully and specifically pursue sin in our life. We're vulnerable to doubt when we're weak, when we're in pain, when we experience fatigue. And where are we most vulnerable? I think most of you know that Satan targets your mind. His weapon lies. His purpose to make us ignorant of God's will. And then Satan targets our body. His weapon, suffering or illness. His purpose to make us impatient with God's will. And then he targets our will. He goes from our mind to our body to our will and his weapon is pride and his purpose to make us act independent of God's will. But the Bible also says that we have resources. We have the inspired word of God. We have the imparted grace of God. We have the indwelling spirit of God. And John has the good sense of, to go to the source. He finds a way to sneak a message to Jesus. And that becomes the first step for each and every person who's dealing with doubt. Have you figured out a way to get a message to Jesus? Have you figured out a way to ask him, tell me who you are, Tell me who you are and tell me what you think of me or what you need from me. It's interesting to me. He asks the question, Are you the one? But he doesn't add, And by the way, can you get me out of here? I find that interesting in and of itself. John the Baptist had special revelation. The Bible says that he was filled with the spirit from the moment that he was conceived in his mother's womb. He had a special revelation, but it was an incomplete revelation. He was in the same position that other Old Testament prophets found themselves with a complete message, but with an incomplete picture of God's entire plan. Do we have the complete gospel? The answer is yes. Do we have a complete picture of how we're saved? Yes, we're sinners in need of a savior. We can by faith come to Christ. We can turn from our sin. We can receive salvation. Do we have a complete picture of God's plan and God's will for every area of our life? The answer is no, we don't. We have some revelation, but we don't have a complete revelation. And we have some revelation, but sometimes God calls each and every one of us to live by faith, to walk by faith, to depend upon him and to rely upon him and to reach out to him. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13:9, "We know in part." In 1 John chapter 3, John writes that we don't necessarily know what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. So what is the information that you have? And what is the information that you need? The Christian who commits to studying and knowing God's word and God's will will find himself or herself equipped to face the onslaught of inaccurate or incomplete information. John MacArthur writes, quote, when God is allowed to speak through his word, doubt vanishes like mist in the sunlight. And that's exactly right. And Jesus will speak. And guess what? When he speaks, now we can begin to understand what it is that we need. The word of God is our most effective weapon in our war on doubt. The Bible says that the Bereans were more noble-minded and received the word with great eagerness because they examined the scriptures to see whether these things are so And it makes perfect sense to me that Satan would then question the veracity, the integrity, the reliability of the book that you have in your lap. Paul's advice, again, preceded Ronald Reagan by almost 2,000 years. Trust, but verify. Trust the word of God. Healthy doubt questions man's wisdom. Healthy doubt, healthy doubt sends us back to the word of God. God's word dispels unhealthy doubts and sinful doubts. And so we see the doubt with people's expectation. It would appear that John shared a common messianic expectation with many of the Jews in his generation. Why wouldn't the Messiah come and establish his kingdom right on the spot? Why wouldn't Jesus throw off the yoke of political and social bondage and bring Israel freedom? Rome had to go. Romans had to go. Many Jewish people thought the Messiah would come and that he would eliminate suffering. That Messiah would heal all diseases, banish all hunger, eliminate debt, and bring sensible programming to television. No, they, they didn't break, They didn't have TV back in those days. That was what I want. I just threw that in. But here's the point: Jewish people expected a kind of messianic welfare state. Where the Messiah doled out benefits, all material needs would be furnished, it would be a utopia, it would be a paradise, the Messiah would bring health care, wealth, freedom from work, full bellies. And now we will begin to understand why when Jesus feeds the multitudes, everyone just bum rushes him and says, let's make this guy the king of everything. Could it be that John, just for a moment, that just for a split second, that Jesus might, like himself, be sent by God with a message from God, but he was just simply a prophet? Clearly, Jesus' own disciples in the beginning had a misconception about his identity and mission. Even after Jesus' resurrection in Acts chapter 1 verse 6, the disciples said, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel at this time? Jesus has died. He's come back to life. He's getting ready to ascend into heaven. They're asking, is this it? Are we done? Are we done? And Jesus repeats his mission. That he's come to save people from their sin. That the real problem, the real drama, the real difficulty that you face is the presence of sin. And that you need to be reconciled to God. People remain confused about Jesus' claim, his mission his return. Have you ever heard someone say, well, look, if Jesus is God, then why doesn't he simply eliminate the devil? Why doesn't he eliminate sin? Why doesn't he get rid of suffering for good? Why doesn't he deal with death? If God is a God of justice, why doesn't he eliminate injustice? If God is really God, why doesn't he just get rid of evil? The answer is simple but profound. And the answer is because he would have to get rid of you. And me, you would have to go. But Jesus isn't trying to figure out a way to get rid of you. Jesus has found a way to save you and redeem you, forgive you and reconcile you. You see, if you're wondering why all of this is happening, it's because God has a plan and a purpose. His unfolding drama of redemption, he's calling people to himself. He's bringing people to a place of submission and obedience to himself. Many people have many thoughts about God and some of them are informed and some of them are misinformed by the culture, by tragedy, by movies, by bad books by bad doctrine, by well-meaning family and well-meaning friends. And the Bible says the world doesn't know God. And the world doesn't embrace the revelation of God in the scripture. And to the unbelieving Jews who refused to believe Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus would plainly say to them in John 10, 26, but you do not believe. Believe because you are not of my sheep as I said to you. And look at the end of verse 3. Do we look for another? 1.3 billion Muslims say, yes, we look for another. Jesus, prophet Jesus has to wait six more centuries for Muhammad to come because there's another coming. Or talk to the 30 million Mormons around the world who believe that Joseph Smith is the final person who who determines who gets to go to heaven and who gets to go to hell. He, along with hundreds of other people, have suggested that there must be another who's going to come, who's going to give us the right information. But Jesus is going to belie all of that with his simple response. And he could very easily have said, hey, we still have to wait five more centuries for Muhammad. Or we have to wait another 18 centuries for Joseph Smith. But he doesn't say that at all. Do we look for Muhammad? Do we look for a person who's going to give us a message of judgment? John is in prison. He's asking the question, how long do we have to wait? How long do we have to wait? How long do we have to wait? And look what Jesus' response is. In verse 4, Jesus answers and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. Do you know what's interesting about that? The answer Jesus is going to give is full of tenderness, it's full of tact. It's full of hope. Have you noticed that Jesus always seems to have exactly the right thing to say at exactly the right time? Notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, tell my friend John, it's all going to burn. The world is going to catch on fire. By the way, Is judgment going to eventually come? It will eventually come. Is a real Savior going to come and deal with all of the problems and all of the issues and all of the unbelief and all of the rejection and all of the unbelief? The answer is yes. That's that's going to happen. But look what Jesus says in verse 5. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. The two disciples who are going to go back to John are going to be given the perfect answer. Jesus says to him, you tell John what you're hearing with your own ears and what you're seeing with your own eyes. Jesus will use the language of Isaiah chapter 35 verses 5 and 6 and Isaiah chapter 61 verses 1 and 2. In Isaiah 35 it says in verses 5 and 6, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. Opened. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer. The tongue of the dumb sing, for waters shall burst forth in the wilderness, and there will be streams in the desert." In Isaiah 61.1, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good tidings to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the door of the prison to those who are bound. Where is John? In prison. Where is John? Bound. Where's John awaiting execution? What was John's expectation? Judgment? Political liberation? W.H. Griffith Thomas writes, and I quote His works of love were true signs of Messiahship, and his miracles emblems of spiritual deliverance, thereby clearly suggesting the fulfillment of the prophecy. It's Jesus's way of saying God's plan is still in place. God's mission is still in place. God's goals are still in place because God's goal at this particular moment and this particular time wasn't to burn the world with fire, but to find a way To redeem people and reconcile them to himself. Just like he's trying to do with you. Just like he's trying to do with your children. With your grandchildren. With their questions. Even with their expectations. It would appear that. Jesus performs these miracles in their presence to take the message back to John. These miracles, remember, in part are intended to establish the evidence, the proof, the proof that he is who he says he is and that he is on track with God's plan and God's purpose. And so, again, why does Jesus say, blessed is he who is not offended because of me? I'm going to suggest to you it's because it's not the message that some people had hoped to hear. Remember what I said earlier? Is there a message of eventual judgment? I think that the answer is yes. Does Jesus preach a message that includes God's infinite capacity for compassion and mercy and love and patience? And now all of a sudden we understand Peter's words when he writes that God is not slack concerning judgment, but he is patient and kind and long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. Why doesn't God do what I want him to do? Because he has unfinished business and unfinished plans. And he doesn't always have to include you in the process as he, those plans unfold. God isn't looking for reasons to send you to hell. God's looking for reasons to bring you to himself and to bring you to heaven And so when Jesus says, oh, how happy is he who doesn't stumble or is offended by the way God has planned to accomplish salvation. We might think of this as the blessedness of the unoffended. Oh, how happy is he who is not offended because of me. In what way? I want salvation on my terms. I want redemption and reconciliation on my terms. And Jesus says, no, God's plan is the best plan. God's way is the best way. God's method is the best method. The kingdom of God is coming. Maybe not in the way you expected, but the poor have the gospel preached to them regular folks are receiving hope and encouragement. What Jesus did then, he's able to do now. The blind, the spiritually blind are made to see and the deaf are made to hear. Jesus opens people's eyes and Jesus makes it possible for the person who's been crippled to walk. He gives a promise and a warning and Oh how happy is exactly both of those it's a warning and a promise. William Barclay writes quote this was spoken to John and it was spoken because John had only grasped half the truth. Jesus preached John preached the gospel of divine holiness with divine love. So Jesus says to John, maybe I'm not doing the things you expected me to do, but the powers of evil are being defeated not by an irresistible power, but by an unanswerable love, unquote. Sometimes a man can be offended at Jesus because Jesus cuts across his idea of what religion should be, unquote. And that's exactly what sometimes Jesus will do. He won't leave you in the place of failed expectations and false hope. By the way, the word offended is the Greek verb skandalizeth. It means to trip or to offend. And so what are we to think? Does Jesus offer the most loving the most effective, the most productive way to reach people, to heal people, to bring them to himself. And so, are you upset? Are you offended at the way Jesus has chosen to act in your life? Are you disappointed in the decisions other people have made for you or about you? Henry Drummond once wrote quote, Christ never failed to distinguish between doubt and unbelief. Doubt is can't believe, unbelief is won't believe. Doubt is honesty. Unbelief is obstinacy. Doubt is looking for light. Unbelief is I'm content with the darkness. There's a difference between struggling with doubt and struggling with unbelief. Can faith live in honest doubt? C.H. Spurgeon asked, quote, Where do you live? Many a believer lives in the cottage of doubt. Doubt. When he might be living in the mansion of faith. I think the reason why he says that is it's an invitation for you and I. To not just simply live in a small prison of our own making of incomplete or inaccurate information or failed expectation. We were meant to doubt ourselves, but not the truth. We were meant to question what other people say. But Jesus invites you to believe him and see with your own two eyes and hear with your own two ears and experience in your own heart what it means to know him and to love him, to experience forgiveness and hope. I've said it often. Doubt sees the obstacles. Faith sees the way. Doubt sees the blackest night. Faith sees the day. Doubt dreads to take a step. Faith soars on high. Doubt questions who believes. Faith answers I. Chuck Smith told us over and over and over again, don't give up what you know for what you don't know. Hold on to what you know to be true. Allow it to inform you in your circumstances. In pain and suffering when the answer isn't easy or it isn't forthcoming, when your child, when your grandchild comes up to you and says, I don't know if the Bible's true. I don't know if the story's true. How can I know it's true? Don't just simply ask them, what is it that you don't believe? Begin the conversation by asking them, what is it that you do believe? What is is it that you know that you know that you know is true? And guess what? With patience, Prayer, persuasion, at least becomes a possibility. Don't give up what you know for what you don't know. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks for your love and thanks for your grace and thanks for your mercy. Lord, help us to understand the difference between doubt and unbelief. Lord, help us to understand that with the revelation of Jesus will come the rejection by some. But it will also result in reception by others. Some people will hear the truth that Jesus loves us, that he really will die, that he'll come back to life and that he can change me and they'll be forever changed because of the gospel. Lord, I pray for each and every person within the sound of my voice who doesn't know you. Lord, I pray that the darkness would become light and the emptiness would become fullness and that the despair and the doubt would become hope as they confess that they're sinners in need of a savior. And as they find the answer to that question that they asked a long time ago, why doesn't God get rid of all of this stuff? The answer because he wasn't prepared to get rid of me. He wanted to save me, forgive me, heal me, and give me a life with purpose and meaning and hope. And Lord, I pray that that purpose and meaning and hope could become real in every single person's heart as they believe the truth about Jesus. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.